Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, Western Hills family. Uh, this is going to be a non-traditional Sunday morning lesson because we're not able to be together in the same place, but we're always talking about how church is not necessarily just the building. It's us being able to gather together. And these are some extraordinary times. Uh, lots of fear, anxiety, sickness, sadness, and unfortunately even death around the world, in our country, and even in our state. So we're grateful that you are uh, willing to take some time this morning to commune together with us in this uh, video church space. Uh, the elders have asked me to share a message this morning and I'm going to tell you right off the bat that uh, giving a video message in front of nobody is uh, really weird and so I apologize in advance for looking down at my notes and back up and around and it's just just it's just kind of awkward, so have some grace with me, please. I would appreciate that. We are standing outside. Um, we're in front of a grain silo, which I think will make some sense in a bit, but that also means that there may be some chicken squawking and some pig grunting and possibly even a cow walking behind me at some point. And if that happens, again, I just ask for some forgiveness, but I feel like if we're gonna do this non-traditional thing, why not just go for it? Um, so again, we're, we're grateful you're here today and, and let's get into it. Uh, what I'd like to focus on today is something very near and very dear to my heart, and that is toilet paper. And you may be thinking, ah, that's a weird way to start off, uh, but I bet it's pretty near and dear to your heart as well, and I bet I can prove it. Uh, Americans spend over $6 billion per year on toilet paper, and the average American goes through 57 squares of this stuff per day. 50 pounds over the course of a year. And I just have one thing to say about that. I might use 20 to 30 squares a day. Who out there is using 80 to 120 squares to bring up that average? You must have missed the folding lesson. It was a very important lesson, and I need you to teach your kids about it. That's just crazy. Um, in the 1970s, a TV guide poll named the man on the toilet paper commercials known as Mr. Whipple the third most famous man in America behind President Richard Nixon and the Reverend Billy Graham. That is crazy. I can't believe that. America isn't the only country in love with toilet paper. A reporter, Linda McRobbie, says that the real growth in the industry today, the big old toilet paper industry, is happening in developing countries. The spread of globalization, she says, can be measured by the spread of Western bathroom practices. How about that? When average citizens in a country start buying toilet paper, wealth and consumerism have arrived. It signifies that not only do people have extra cash to spend, but that they've also come under the influence of Western marketing. Now, this past Tuesday, this came across one of my news feeds, uh, there was a report out of a news, news channel in California that Californians were crossing the border down into Baja, Mexico to buy, and I want you to listen to the order of this. This is straight from the report. Toilet paper, water, and other supplies. People are crossing the border to buy toilet paper, number one, it's the first thing they listed, water and other supplies. Mankind can live for maybe three days if we're really pushed without water. All of these reports this past week make me think that we are less likely to be able to survive without one day of toilet paper. Um, now, there are a lot of directions I could go from here. Specifically, 
number one or number two? Okay, all right. I'm done with the toilet paper joke. Uh, done, done with the toilet paper talk for now. There are a few questions that I think will be important in this little one-sided conversation we'll be having today. Um, and that's, there's one question that I'd, I'd really like to start off with, which is what drives us as humans to run to the store and hoard things when we get bad news? In the 1970s, on the heels of a stock market tumble, an oil crisis, and another supposed TP shortage, maybe caused by Johnny Carson, uh, a few experts put together a study on hoarding. They found that for consumer hoarding to take place, two things had to happen. First, the purchaser had to believe that the current price of the item is lower than it would be at a future date, and that includes the price of keeping the item or storing the item. Now that makes sense to me. If I know gas is at $1.75 now, I'm going to go fill up if I even think it's going to be $3.45 next week, right? That makes sense. Now the second thing is an individual needs to be motivated by a desire to secure one's own supplies for personal use. In other words, this isn't just about buying something to make a profit off of it later or buying something because you think it's cool and rare. This is about buying something because you don't want your consumption to be disrupted. It's about making sure I have the ability to consume what I want, when I want, and how I want it, regardless of what that does to the rest of society. It is an individual putting their own needs in front of others. So now that we know what hoarding is, kind of scientifically from those experts, why do we do it? The social explanation offered by those same experts is that this is all triggered by scarcity not enough supply. When we believe scarcity may be present, we tend to think, sometimes in error, that the supply of something is uncertain, and we rush to secure it for ourselves. Now let's get something straight. How many of you went to the store this week, virtual hand raise? I did. How many of you probably bought more this week when you went to the store than you would generally buy when you go to the store? Definitely did. We stocked up. I would say there is a difference, a very clear difference between somebody who goes to the store, buys some toilet paper, buys some sanitizer, buys some other stuff that they need for the next two weeks to get through and make sure that we're all safely social distancing, and the person who arrives from a two-person household at Sam's Club and fills five carts worth of stuff for the next two weeks. I think there's a difference there. And I'm looking at you, people who use 57 plus sheets of toilet paper per day. There's a difference there. And I think the Bible shows us that preparing, being well-equipped, is not a bad thing. It's not bad to be prepared and take care of your family. Um, in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what we're talking about today is unnecessary hoarding. What we're talking about today is, is collecting a good or item at the expense of everyone around us, not something that's just readily available. That's what we're talking about today. Now, quite a bit of what I say over the next few minutes is paraphrased from someone much wiser and more studied than I. Walter Brueggemann, a professor of Old Testament, or used to be a professor of Old Testament at Columbian Theological University. Seminary, pardon me. I ask that you consider looking up the Liturgy of Abundance, the Myth of Scarcity. 
Look it over on your own time, please, because there's just not enough time for me to go in depth and actually read you all of these specific things in here that are such deep, profound theological points. But I'm going to do my best to share some of the key points today because I think it's really fitting for this current time that we're in. A majority of the world's resources pour into our country on a daily basis, and somehow we as Americans grow more and more wealthy. Money is becoming a kind of narcotic for us. We hardly notice our own prosperity or the poverty of so many others. The great contradiction is that even though we have more money than before, we are also less generous. The Bible starts out in Genesis chapter 1 with the liturgy of abundance. It is a song of praise for God's generosity. What does God say after every act of creation? It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. God blesses the plants, the animals, the fish, the birds, humankind. Everything is to multiply the overflowing goodness that pours from God's creator spirit. And as we talked about last time I preached at Western Hills, the creation ends in a Sabbath. God is so pleased with his good and beautiful work that he sits back and he rests and he delights in knowing that it is enough and it is good. Later in Genesis, God blesses Abraham, Sarah, and their family. God tells them to be a blessing, instructs them to be a blessing, to bless people of all nations. Walter Brueggemann says, We come to understand that blessing is the force of well-being active in the world. And faith is the awareness that creation is the gift that keeps on giving. That awareness dominates most of Genesis until its 47th chapter. In that chapter, Pharaoh dreams that there will be famine in the land. So Pharaoh gets organized to administer, control, monopolize, or hoard the food supply. What's happening here is Pharaoh is introducing scarcity into Israel's story. Pharaoh, like many before and many after him, is afraid that there is not enough to go around. And he wants to control what he can because he is fearful of the scarcity, and because he is fearful of the scarcity, he is ruthless. Pharaoh hires Joseph, our friend with the coat of many colors, to manage the monopoly he's building, and when the crops do fail and the peasants run out of food, Joseph's own kin, his own blood, come to him. And on behalf of Pharaoh, Joseph, son of Jacob, says, what is your collateral? The first year, the Israelites gave up their land for food. And then the next year, they gave up their cattle. And by the third year of the famine, they had no collateral but themselves to offer. At the hand of their own, through an economic transaction based on fear and scarcity, they enter into what will become slavery. By the end of Genesis 47, Pharaoh has accumulated all the land except that belonging to the priests, which is ironic, because he still needed to be blessed. Even as all this went on in Egypt, the promises of creation and creation's story continued to operate in the lives of the children of Israel. Even in captivity, the people of God continued to multiply. By the end of Exodus 1, Pharaoh decided that there were simply too many too many. He didn't want any more Hebrew babies to be born, so he told two midwives to kill all newborn Hebrew baby boys. But they don't, and the Hebrew babies keep on coming. 
By the end of Exodus, Pharaoh has been as mean, brutal, and ugly as he knows how to be, and as the myth of scarcity tends to make people be. Even in the face of powers and plagues, he cannot understand. Finally, he becomes so exasperated by his inability to control the people of Israel and their God that he calls Moses and Aaron to come to him. Pharaoh tells them, take your people, leave. Take your flocks, leave. And then the great king of Egypt, who presides over the monopoly of the region's resources, asks Moses and Aaron to bless him. The powers of scarcity admit to this small community of abundance. Before you leave, lay your powerful hands upon us and give us your energy. The text shows the power of the future is not in the hands of those who believe in scarcity, who hoard. It is in the hands of those who trust in God's abundance. When the children of Israel depart for the wilderness with God as their guide, they look back and they think, should we really leave this place? Should we really leave Pharaoh? All the world's glory is in Egypt and with Pharaoh. But when they finally do leave and journey into the wilderness, where there are no monopolies, they see the glory of Yahweh. In answer to the people's fears and complaints, something extraordinary happens. God's love comes raining down in the form of bread, manna. They had never before received a free gift that they couldn't control, predict, plan, or own. The gifts of life are indeed given by a generous God. God's abundant al abundance always transcends the market economy. Three things to note about this bread from the sky in this time in the lives of these people. First, importantly, everybody had enough. It's clearly mentioned. But because Israel had learned to believe in scarcity in Egypt, people started to hoard the bread, didn't they? And when they tried to hoard it, to invest it, it turned sour and it rotted. Because you cannot hoard up God's generosity to keep only for yourself. Finally, Moses said, you know what we should do? We should do what God did in Genesis. We ought to have a Sabbath. And Sabbath means that there is enough bread. There is enough for us, and it is good. That we don't have to hustle every day of our lives just to make ends meet. People whose lives consist of struggling to get more and more and more can never slow down because they won't have enough to satisfy them. Now, I must confess that one of the central conundrums in my life is that I am torn by a conflict. The conflict between my attraction to the good news of God's abundance and my belief in scarcity. A temptation that can make me very unneighborly at times, most of the time. Most of us, I think, will probably spend our whole lives wrestling with that ambiguity, trusting in God's abundance and wrestling with the world's scarcity. The gospel story of abundance confidently tells us that we originated, we began by God loving us into generous being. The story of abundance also says that our lives will end in God. There goes the TP. And that this well-being cannot be taken from us. In the words of Paul in Romans 8, neither life nor death, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor things, nothing can separate us from God. What we know about our beginnings then, and our endings, creates a different kind of present tense for us. We can live according to an ethic whereby we are not driven, controlled, anxious, frantic, or greedy because precisely we are sufficiently at home, at peace in the goodness of God and his abundance. And that gives us the ability to care for others as we have been cared for. But if you're like me, when you pray, sometimes your mind drifts to your checking account. And the days when you watch more news than you do read the Bible are probably pretty frequent. And the advertisements in the news say that our worth is in our achievements and that we must create ourselves out of what we earn and what we buy. According to the news and those advertisers' stories, whoever has the most of what everyone wants when they die wins. The advertiser's story says there are no gifts to be given because we are go-getters. The story ends in despair. It produces abuse, indifference, the buildup of armaments, racism. It tells us not to care about anyone but ourselves, and it is the prevailing creed of our culture. What we know in the recesses of our hearts as Christians is that the story of scarcity is a tale of death. There is, friends, a more excellent sustenance, a better bread than rude materialism and collection. It is the bread of life, lived abundantly in community, and you cannot make it, you cannot bake it, and you cannot buy it. You may only receive it and share it. A great question now for all of us who believe is whether our faith allows us to live in a new way. If we choose the story of death, of collection, and excess, in the face of perceived scarcity, we will lose our lives, and likely our land, to excessive chemicals pumping out the water table, continuously burning what we drill from hundreds of meters below the ground. Or maybe we'll only lose it at night, as going out after dark becomes more and more dangerous in the face of those whose reality is scarcity because ours is excess. Over 10% of the world's population is able to eat enough that they become obese. And over 12% of the world's population, 2% more, aren't able to put enough food on the table. Joshua 24 puts the choice before us. He begins by reciting the story of God's generosity and concludes by saying, I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is not a health and wealth verse. When we talk about serving God and living in abundance, we're clearly not talking about becoming extravagantly wealthy. Joshua warns the people that this choice will bring them conflict. If they want to be in the story of abundance, they must give up the God of scarcity. What now does Jesus have to say about the liturgy of abundance and the myth of scarcity? Jesus talks a great deal about the kingdom of God coming near, and what he might just mean by that is that we are called to a public life reorganized towards neighborliness. As a child, Jesus would have heard his mother singing, and as we know, she sang a revolutionary song the Magnificat. She sang a song to her son and his people about how God brings down the mighty and lifts up the lowly, about how God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. 
Mary did not make up this dangerous song. She took it from another mother, Hannah, mother of Samuel, who became one of ancient Israel's greatest revolutionaries. Hannah, Mary, and their boys imagined a great social transformation. Jesus enacted his mother's song well. Everywhere he went, he broke the vicious cycles of poverty, bondage, fear, and death. He healed, transformed, empowered, and brought new life. Jesus' example gives us the mandate to transform our public life, to break and share our bread with those around us. The feeding of the multitudes recorded in Mark's gospel is an example of abundance coming into being through God. When the disciples charged with feeding the hungry crowd found a child, he had five loaves and two fishes. Jesus took, blessed, broke, and gave the bread. Those are the four decisive verbs of our existence. Jesus conducted a Eucharist, a gratitude. He demonstrated that the world is filled with abundance and generosity. We are to accept the gifts that we have been given. We are to give thanks and bless it for ourselves and others. And then we are to break it so that it may be shared and then give it to those without. There is enough for all. Because when we do this, it is engaging in the holy reordering of what is available to our neighbors. Our faith is not just about spiritual matters, as we all know. It's about the transformation of the world. It's about bringing the kingdom closer. The closer we stay to Jesus, we will bring a new economy of abundance into the world. The disciples often struggled to decipher what Jesus was exactly about. They tried to fit him into the patterns of the world that they knew. But that didn't often work. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul shares this radical vision of Jesus' mission. Though Jesus was rich, Paul says, yet for your sake he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. We say it takes money to make money. Paul says it takes poverty to create abundance. Our abundance and the poverty of others need to be brought into a new balance. Paul ends his stewardship letter by quoting Exodus 16. And the one who had much did not have too much. And the one who had little do not have too little. Pulled directly from that message we saw earlier in the wilderness. The wilderness that was transformed into a daily display of the abundance of Yahweh. It is, of course, much easier to talk about these things than to live them. Many people both inside and outside of the church don't have a clue that Jesus is talking about the economy, our engagement with people, our sacrifices, our generosity, our income. But he is. And he might even be talking about buying Walmart out of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. And maybe we don't think he's talking about that very often, at least it doesn't cross my mind very often until something like this past week comes along, is because we're not looking for it and we're not sharing it. But we must begin to do so. Our world absolutely requires this news, particularly in this moment. It has nothing to do with being Republicans or Democrats, conservative, liberal, whatever you might be. This is much more basic and fundamental. The creation is infused with the Creator's generosity. 
and we can find practices and procedures for ourselves that allow that generosity to work. Like the rich young man in Mark chapter 10, we in America have many possessions. Everyone in America that makes over $15,000 is among the top 8% wealth earners in the world. The question is, what do we do with it? I hope for all of us, for Casey and I, for everyone at church, for the world, that this goes away quickly and that nobody else is affected. That's what I hope. I hope we wake up tomorrow and we're back to normal, whatever normal was. But regardless of what's happening in the world, and maybe actually because of what's happening in the world around us, now is our time. Will we be, for lack of a better term, toilet paper pharaohs? Or will we, as the people of a loving God, an abundant God, a generous God, show the world what that liturgy of abundance looks like? Over the next few weeks, there's a possibility that paychecks will pause, maybe even come to an end for some. That bills might become due that can't be paid, and that food might be tough for some to come by. And I want to share a word of appreciation for the elders of this church and their diligence and servant hearts that have been on display in their communications to all of us over the past week or so. And I invite all of us to join them as they seek to minister to this community in this unique time. Casey and I don't have much we can share. But if anyone, and we mean that, if any one of you thinks you're about to go without food or is not sure if you're going to be able to put something on the table for your family, I want you to reach out. And we'll make sure that you have some. And I don't think we're the only people at Western Hills who are willing to do whatever we can to help those might not be as fortunate as we are in some ways. And so I encourage us all, and that's my challenge as we leave this video space together today. I think if we all bring forward our loaves and our fishes, we'll be okay. We may even come up with 12 extra rolls of toilet paper. Be blessed, wash your hands, and be mindful of those around you who are at risk with their health. That's the reason we're doing all of this. And as a community, let's rather rally together and share in the abundance that God has given us. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for giving us today our daily bread and for giving us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, God, but deliver us from evil. Be with those who are sick, suffering, sad, anxious, depressed, those who need help, patience, guidance, love, and a hug, God, and let us be your hands and your feet in this time. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.